Our opening and closing theme is by Midnight Syndicate. For more dark instrumental music like it, visit www.midnightsyndicate.com or find them on YouTube, Spotify, Apple, or Alexa. True crime stories are discussed in this podcast, which may contain graphic and disturbing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Freshly Brewed Noir. I'm Jennifer. And I'm Summer. And this is episode 18, Herb Baumeister. Yes. (laughs) You said it correctly. Yes, we had to listen to some clips to make sure. We had to watch a raccoon video. We will talk about that raccoon video (laughs) because... It's a little concerning. There were several things that you found concerning, so we'll definitely have to dive into that. We will. Right now, we are freshly toasted. A little (laughs) bit of rosé. We needed it for these two episodes that we're going to cover. I'm covering the serial killer, Herb Baumeister, and then Jennifer is covering the hauntings that take place on the property. Yeah, so this is essentially a two-parter for us. It is, yeah. And we're going to release them back-to-back, so... You don't have to wait. No. You'll get all of the juicy details (laughs) as soon as possible. Gross! (laughs) Yes. So for a little bit off the chain, that's why. And, And go Braves, because they won the World Series. They did, yes. I drank rosé for them. Cheer, here, we're going to cheers to the Braves right now. Cheers. Clink, clink. <laughs> we probably didn't even need to make the clink because it actually clinked. <laughs> so we'll have a real clink and then our clink. Yeah, our little sound effects. Yeah. Okay. All right, so any other business? No business. I think we just know this dude is probably like a just all-around bad guy. He's really bad. And this was given to us by my stepmom. Yes, Thank Judy. you, Judy. Gave us this great material. Yes. So we appreciate that yeah. because this was a deep dive and it was very interesting. Yeah. And neither of us had heard about Mr. Herbert. Nope. Freshly brewed material for us. For us freshly toasted <laughs> co-hosts. <laughs> exactly. Okay. So let's Let's take a sip and we will uh, dive in. Okay. This story is actually about Herb Baumeister and also the I-70 Strangler because it's kind of linked. A lot of people think he was the I-70 Strangler. But it's not confirmed. He's just one of the suspects, right? Right, because the I-70 Strangler is still unidentified to this day. I'm going to go through and read off the victims in the timeline as I'm going through Herb's timeline. That way you can kind of see how some things line up. We'll talk about it after. I'm ready. Herbert Baumeister was born on April 7th, 1947 in Indianapolis, Indiana. He was the oldest of four children, and his father was an anesthesiologist who practiced at a hospital nearby. He began exhibiting strange behavior at an early age. In elementary school, he found a dead crow in the road and placed it in his pocket. When he got to school, he placed the dead crow on his teacher's desk when she wasn't looking. Hmm. A little strange. Yeah, I don't go pick up dead animals and then, you know, bring them to school. Right. But we were girls. Maybe that's something that boys can relate to. I don't know. You had brothers. I had brothers. I don't think they ever picked up dead animals and took them to school, though. My brother never did that either. So (laughs) I think it's a little abnormal to place it on the teacher's desk, maybe. Well, okay. I mean, but but they would stink, I would think. So it, I don't know. Is why it, would you want to? Is it fresh? That? Does fresh roadkill stink? Yeah, it probably. Yes, does. it does. It does. I, I You're can right. Tell you it does. In, and I'm Georgia. sure there are bugs. Oh, okay. So it's confirmed. That's strange. <laughs> yes. Okay. One friend stated that Herb would ponder what it was like to drink human urine. 
Confirmed. That's disgusting. That's I've, abnormal. I don't think I've ever pondered that. Never. And just reading it and having to, for a split second, think that somebody's pondering that, it just made me sick. That's gross. I don't even like giving Tepid my urine water. for, for <laughs> lab tests. I, I, don't, I don't even know what to say about that. I mean, but there maybe it's a fetish thing. Oh, it could be. So yeah, we will we well, shame. We'll get into his fetishes. He had some. Okay. Once he actually urinated on his teacher's desk. So there's definitely some urine fascination with this guy. When do you have time to do that? When do you do that? That poor teacher. And she just, see, this is why teachers need raises. Yeah, you're getting dead birds and like you're, someone's peeing and, on your desk. I mean, you know, the teachers in the elementary school were like, oh, who gets Herbert next year? Watch out. Yeah. Like red flags. <laughs> yes. Get the plastic mats out, please. <laughs> Okay, so his parents noticed that there was something wrong, and when he was a teenager, they took him to see a doctor where he was diagnosed with schizophrenia and possibly multiple personalities. However, he did not receive any psychiatric treatment after the diagnosis, Hmm. which is really sad. I think he would have benefited from that. I think so. So Herb never obviously quite fit in during high school either. And after graduation, he enrolled in Indiana University with a major in anatomy, which is kind of scary. Right. (laughs) Once you hear the rest of this. Um, So he was intending to go to medical school like his father. And this is where he met his wife, Julie, in college. And she was a high school teacher. I wonder if he told her, like, hey, you know what I did to my high school teacher? (laughs) Right? And it sounds like he's actually pretty academically successful. He was very smart, but he did end up dropping out of school in 1967. So he went for like a year. And then he went back to Indianapolis to work for The Star, which was a local paper. In 1971, Julie and Herb married. And then in 1972, Herb spent about two months in a psychiatric hospital, apparently over an emotional breakdown over a car problem. I have those all the time. I I don't see any issue with that (laughs) because, yes. Cars are stressful. They're so stressful and ridiculous. The car I have right now, I despise it. Yeah. And I'm just so tired of it. (laughs) So him having a breakdown over car problems, that seems normal to us. (laughs) I think it's irrational. After that, he took a job at the Indiana Bureau of Motor Vehicles. For Christmas that year, he sent out photos to his co-workers that showed him and another man dressed in drag. Now, that may not seem strange to many of us, but it was out of character for Herb since he displayed a very conservative lifestyle to his co-workers. And I was thinking of one of my friends from California sends this Christmas card, or he did for many years, where he was in this pink onesie and he had roses in his mouth. And it was just the (laughs) I love. Yeah, it was the coolest Christmas card. And he's this big guy with a beard. It's hilarious. So to me, the drag picture isn't that strange. But in that time in Indiana, for somebody who's very conservative, I guess that was a red flag. Maybe it's a little abnormal for or out of character. for Out of character for him. Exactly. But here is where things are not approved. (laughs) He also urinated on a letter that was addressed to the governor of Indiana. Oh, which got him fired. Sending my regards. (laughs) (laughs) Let me drop my drugs and my regards. Here's some of my DNA. What is is he doing? Uh, Merry Christmas. Is that a Merry Christmas? I don't think so. Maybe in his mind. I don't know either. 
him in the urine. To me, it sounds like a fetish. He <laughs> is more than willing to share. Okay, that's fine if you have a fetish, but the fetish should be shared with the person receiving the urine as well. Yes. Right. And maybe, you know, the person consenting to that. I don't know how I'd feel if I received one of those. I'll tell you how I'd feel. <laughs> not feel happy about it. And I've had three kids, so babies have urinated on me. It's different when you created that human. And most of the time, they probably can't control it. Right. This is different. <laughs> yes, this is a grown person. This is a grown person urinating on a letter to the governor. How did he feel about that? I bet he's reading all this now and saying, I knew that letter smelled. It was kind of crunchy <laughs> when I took it out. And Thought it was just coffee stain. It was tinged with a little bit of... Hmm. Okay, <laughs> enough about the urine. <laughs> In 1979, Herb and Julie had a baby girl. In June of 1980, the first boy was found murdered, which would later be attributed to the I-70 Strangler. It was 15-year-old Michael Petrie. He was naked, and the cause of death was strangulation. Then in 1981, Herb and Julie had a son. In July of 1982, 23-year-old Maurice Taylor's topless corpse was found off of I-70. While the cause of death could not be established, the coroner suspected strangulation. Taylor was known to frequent Indianapolis gay bars, and it took eight months for him to be identified because his mother was detained in a mental hospital and unable to file a missing persons report. Oh, so she didn't even know. No. So sad. Yeah. Then Delvoid Lee Baker, a 14-year-old, was found semi-nude, and he had called his parents the night of October 2nd and said he was going to the movies, but it was later found out that he and a friend were at a local gay bar. And a lot of these men and young adolescents that went missing were frequenting the Indianapolis gay bar scene. Okay. So is it the same bar, or is it just, like, it, multiple just in that in area? That area? Okay. Yeah, in that area. Michael Andrew Riley, 22, was last seen in the Indianapolis area with an unfamiliar man on May 28, 1983. His nude body was later found in a ditch off the interstate. The autopsy confirmed that he was strangled with a towel or similar fabric. In 1984, Herb and Julie had a third child, a girl. Herb appeared to be a doting father, but in 1985, Herb was arrested for driving drunk in a hit and run. It was during this year that the body of Eric Allen Rudiger, 17, was found along the roadside. He had a burn mark on his shoulder and had been strangled with a rope. Witnesses claimed that he was seen waiting for a bus and then accepting a ride from a passing car. Family and friends said that he was going to attend interviews for a summer job, but he didn't show up for any of them. Oh, gosh. He was so young. I know. And the 14-year-old, too. 15-year-old, 14. He, he really young. targeted some, he some did. really young guys. He did. A year later, Herb was arrested for being involved in a possible insurance fraud scheme, but was acquitted after a bench trial. In August of 1986, Michael Allen Glenn's body was found in a ditch. He was only wearing underwear. He was 29 years old and worked as a handyman. The cause of death was strangulation. So we're seeing a pattern that... He yes. likes strangulation. That's his M.O. Yes. At this point, it sounds like the I-70 Strangler would kill them and just dump them on the side of the road. So this is, again, he has never been identified, but... Kind I'm, of in line. It's in line with what will end up being Herb's M.O. October 15th, 1987, 21-year-old James Robbins went missing and was found two days later, his naked corpse having been strangled. He was also found in a ditch off of I-70. All these bodies are being found off of I-70 these young men having been strangled. Indiana, and some in Ohio too, has just a ton of missing persons It's got to be up. scary for anyone in that community to just go to the bars because they know this guy's still out there. Right. 
So then in 1988, while all this is happening in Indiana and Ohio, Herb and his wife borrowed $4,000 to start a business. They would take used household items and resell them. A part of the proceeds would be donated to the Children's Bureau charity, and the Baumeisters would take a portion as personal income to run the store. In May of 1989, the body of Jean-Paul Talbot was found dumped near a stream and, like the other victims, had been strangled. Then 26-year-old Stephen Elliott's body was found in August of that same year, again near the interstate, and he had also been strangled. I kind of want to talk about how he has this double life going, though, how he just... He's killing these people, and then he... If he's the I-70 strangler, right. If he is. Yeah. Yes. Which I think he is. Because we'll learn later. But he's taking out this loan, thinking about business plans, and donating Raising to... his three kids. Yeah. And donating to charities. Of course. His business was basically a charity. Yeah, so yeah. it's a little strange how these people can put on these two different personas. Double life. Yeah. We see that with Israel Keyes and did. some other serial killers. John Wayne Gacy had a double life too, because everyone thought he was just this nice neighborhood. Wasn't he a handyman or could own a construction company? Was he? I don't know. He creeps me out. Can you do his accent? John Wayne Gacy? <laughs> or John Wayne, little sister. <laughs> Either one. <laughs> no, I'm not as good as Dave. Darn it. Clay Russell Boatman, 32, disappeared in August of 1990. He was found by a group of children in a ditch. Terrible for those poor, traumatized children. Right. His body showed signs of strangulation. He was last believed to be heading to a local gay bar in Indianapolis. Thomas Clevenger Jr., 19, also disappeared in August of that year and was found semi-nude at an abandoned railroad track near Greenville, Ohio. Thomas grew up in a poor neighborhood in Indianapolis and started committing crimes and drinking at an early age. Prior to his murder, he was said to have frequented gay bars to earn money, which may or may not have been true. But it seems like the I-70 Strangler, a.k.a. her Baumeister, most likely, targeted people who were in a really tough place in life. Yeah. And we're seeing his victim profile. Yeah. During this time, the Save-A-Lot store that Herb and his wife had created was having a ton of success, so they opened another one in 1990 in another part of the city. Fall of 1991, the last body attributed to the I-70 Strangler was found in a ditch next to a gravel road. It was 42-year-old Otto Gary Becker's body. Witnesses stated that they had seen Becker in a car with two other men earlier that day, driving on I-70 near Indianapolis, and one of the men was holding Becker down. And I don't know how good that account is because they showed some pictures to the witnesses, but it never panned out to be anything. So I don't know if they actually saw Becker or if they saw another set of three men. Okay, so it's we not don't confirmed. really have any solid evidence for this one. No, not for what the witnesses saw. But this was the last body found on the side of the road, and this was the same year. So this was fall of 1991. This is the same year, coincidentally, when Herb and his wife bought a 18 and a half acre estate called Fox Hollow Farm. I'm familiar. But is that a coincidence? Kind of convenient. It's strange how all these bodies are coming up. And as soon as he buys this house, no more bodies on the side of the road. And But he's got 18 and a half acres. 
I think that's a lot of land. I think we need to dig into this. Okay. <laughs> we will. <laughs> Literally dig into this. <laughs> they have this 18 and a half acre estate called Fox Hollow Farm. So while bodies were not being found along the interstate, men were still going missing from the gay bars in downtown Indianapolis. The missing persons didn't stop. Just the bodies coming up stopped. Because now there's an actual property. Now there's an 18 and a half acre property. So May of 1993 saw the disappearance of John L. Bear. Then in July, Jeffrey Jones and Richard Hamilton went missing. In August of 1993, Alan Livingston went missing. In April of 1994, Stephen Hale disappeared. June of 1994, Alan Bruchard. And in July, Roger Allen Goodlett went missing. Now, Goodlett's family actually hired a private detective, Virgil Vandegrift. And he was a retired Marion County Sheriff, and they hired him to find out where Roger was. And the detective spoke to people at the local gay bars and put up missing posters of Roger, but he didn't find any evidence that actually led him to Roger, unfortunately. But it was also in this year that Herb's 13-year-old son discovered a human skull on the property. A whole skull. Yes. So he ran back to the home with it to show his mother. Julie had their son take her back to where he found the skull, which led to the discovery of more bones in the backyard. That's alarming. I would be panicked. <laughs> right. <laughs> and like so... A human, a human skull in my backyard. I mean, did she not want to look into this? She confronted Herb about it when he got home and told him what she found on the property, but he told her that it was from a medical school skeleton that his father owned, and Herb didn't explain to Julie why the skeleton was in the backyard, but she just believed him and left it at that. I guess Herb was a collector, and he had, among other things, mannequins like around the house. I remember this. So he definitely was a bit of a hoarder. Not extreme, but he just didn't like to get rid of anything. So she just thought it was his dad's from medical school and he just wanted to keep it because it was his dad's and he couldn't get rid of things. I think I would still, you know, to be on the safe side, just double check that. Uh, I'd totally be questioning that. Yep. Hold on. Yep. Why is this in the backyard? Listen to that gut feeling. Right. (laughs) Something looks like a skeleton. It probably is. (laughs) It may not be a medical grade one. It might be a real ass <laughs> <laughs> it might be a real ass skeleton from someone's head. Yes. yes. We're both on the same page. We would question our partner about that. As much as we're into true crime, maybe that's like our advantage. We're just paranoid. I would call you be like, Jennifer, guess what I found in the backyard? Oh my gosh, we have to go take this. Uh, right, yeah. Like, <laughs> right now to the corner. We're going to tell <laughs> your husband. We're just going to go. We need to check this right out. So yeah, but maybe we are from being into all this true crime stuff just a little more suspicious. Yeah. And since he did have that collector kind of thing going on, maybe he she was, was just like, okay. Yeah. She said he was a hoarder. He's a little eclectic. Right. Strange. Girl, you know, if you find a skeleton in my backyard, I'm going to handle that. Uh, right. I know you're big into Halloween, though, so maybe I would just be like, well... <laughs> Just... But you know I like to clean stuff up, so you know I would just leave it strewn about in the backyard. Could have been missed. I wouldn't miss it. I have my collection of Halloween stuff in the tubs. You would know when the yes. skull was missing. You'd be like, hold on, where is skull number 15? <laughs> So around mid-1995, a man who wants to remain anonymous and use the alias Tony Harris noticed a stranger at the bar staring at a missing persons poster of Roger Allen Goodlett. Tony, being a friend of Goodlett's, goes up to the man and asks if he knows who he's staring at in the poster. The stranger, who introduces himself as Brian Smart, says he does not. Tony and Brian started talking, and then Brian invited him back to his employer's home for a swim in the indoor pool. 
Tony agreed, even though he felt something was off with the stranger. People, listen to your gut. Listen to your gut. When it yes. tells you something's off. Don't leave the house. No. Ever. <laughs> Except to collect your skulls from the backyard after Halloween. Exactly. So Brian suggested that they drive separately to the house, but Tony stated that he was more comfortable riding together. That way, if he went missing, like so many men had lately, they would see his car left at the bar that night. So he was already kind of anticipating, hey, people go missing, so I want to leave my car as, I guess, a marker. So people are like, where's Tony? Why is his car still here? I don't think I like either of those options. I don't like those options. No, we don't like those. That's not what you do. But this is what he did. So this was his way, I think, of trying to give himself some insurance that if he did go missing, they would see his car there and maybe come looking for him, huh? I think that's true. But it's advised that you don't do this. <laughs> yes. You very a, much so. If you have a strange feeling about a person, get away from that person. Trust your instinct, like we said. Yes. Just stay inside like we do. <laughs> don't leave. <laughs> So Brian drove them to a rural road, and as they drove in further, he noticed a sign that said something farm. <laughs> it's like, I'm ready. I'm ready chomping at the bitch. She's like, I know. I know. She's raising her hand. When I said something farm, you were like so ready to say, oh, oh, oh. <laughs> I was like, I know. Let the listeners figure it out. <laughs> but okay. It's okay. cute. Then he noticed a large mansion-like house, which was completely dark. Brian told him the basement lights were on, though, where the pool was. Brian led him into the basement and showed Tony where the changing room was. He's so fancy. He's got a changing room. He does. Do you yes. think I should add a changing room to the new house? No. I, I can't afford a changing room. It might room. be haunted. <laughs> I won't have creepy mannequins around the pool. <laughs> so when Tony came out, Brian was already in the pool. Once Tony entered the pool, Brian says, hey, you want to see a neat trick? If you were to squeeze someone's neck to cut off the blood flow to the brain, it would cause the most intense orgasm. So Tony agreed. You're like, you're just, you're paused. You're like, hold on. Red flags. I mean, listen, okay. I know BDSM is a thing, you know, you have what works for you and that's fine, but don't try to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's what he did. <laughs> Tony agreed, and Brian wrapped a hose around Tony's neck and started strangling him. Took a turn. He So he wasn't stopping. He wasn't stopping. And so realizing that Brian was not going to stop, Tony actually pretended to pass out so that Brian would loosen the hose. And it worked. It worked, yes. So according to Tony, he did pull the hose back, and then Tony... Play dead, guys. <laughs> Tony turned to him and accused him of being the man that was murdering men in Indianapolis. Tony states that Brian laughed at him and said nobody would believe a story like that. I mean, it's a crazy story, but... He says it happened. I, I mean, I believe it. Because he knew about the basement pool. He has details. So I do think he had an encounter with Herb and... And he was lucky to make it out alive. So they did end up having some drinks. And Tony said that Brian passed out on a couch... In the morning, because strangling is hard work, so it makes you tired, I guess. And alcohol. <laughs> and alcohol. Oh, alcohol, too. Yeah, that was probably the real culprit. <laughs> yes. <laughs> In the morning, Brian drove him back to the bar. There are two separate accounts of Tony's relationship with Brian Smart. One is that he only went there once. There is also conflicting testimony from Tony later, which makes it seem like he had a romantic relationship with Brian whenever he came into the bar. So we're not quite sure if it was a once and done or if it was a relationship. I know that he 
states that it was a romantic relationship, but why would you, I don't know. So that's the one, I mean, is it just like, is it, is really? it similar to him trying to fix him or? Oh, it could be. Yeah. Or just maybe he, you know, sometimes people are obsessed with these serial killers. They have a following. People want to be around them, to date them. So maybe that was his thing. I guess it could have been. Did he talk about that at all? Not that I, not that I read. Yeah, I didn't dig too much into their relationship or anything like that. So I just... it's just interesting how when someone tries to kill you, you would go back. That's... Like, what was the thought process there? Or maybe he thought I'm special. He didn't want to kill me. So well, maybe... that's because he played dead. <laughs> But then he was alive and he still let him live. That's true. So, I mean, there's no, I don't want to victim shame. And I don't think that's what we're doing. No. But it's just, we're just thinking about. The I would, thought process I think I would it, be yeah. scared. Uh, yeah. If someone tried to kill me, I would stay far away. Right. But maybe it was exhilarating for him. I don't know. It could be maybe like the adrenaline rush, yeah. maybe. Or maybe he grew, what is that, um, what's that? Oh, Munchausen. By proxy, is that it? Or oh, by proxy is through somebody, right? I don't know. What, what's that saying? What's that? We've had too much rosé. We don't know diagnoses we, right we now. We sure don't. <laughs> Stockholm. Is it Stockholm? Oh, Stockholm. That's it. Yes. Maybe yes, it's yes, Stockholm yes. syndrome. I think it is. My rosé says it is. <laughs> well, we must agree with the rosé then. Yep. Confirmed. Mm -hmm. And even though he wasn't captured and held there. But yeah, people gain some type of connection to their captor, right? I think that's what it is. Yeah. Okay. At one point, Tony got the license plate from Brian's car when he came back to the bar. He gave the license plate to the police and told them he believed that Brian was the one abducting and killing gay men in Indianapolis. The missing persons detective that was handling these cases, Mary Wilson, ran the license plate and it came up as Herb Baumeister. Yeah, a.k.a. Of course. Of course. As we have alluded to. Jennifer this entire... was ready to tell you this entire time. And I'm sure you figured it out anyway, but she was just ready. I'm sure you knew. You because knew. Because this is the topic of the episode. <laughs> exactly. So between the tips from the private detective, Vandegriff, and Tony Harris, Detective Wilson drove to Herb's Save-A-Lot store and asked to speak to Mr. Baumeister. The detective asked Herb if he frequented gay bars in Indianapolis. Herb denied ever going to a gay bar. Yeah, because I'm a married man. Yeah, with married whole with three kids. Well, the family. whole ass family, yeah. as Jennifer says. <laughs> whole ass family. Whole, whole ass family. And it was Indiana in the 90s. I can't imagine it was very welcoming to the LGBTQ community. Right. When Wilson told him that she had eyewitnesses who placed him at several bars and one of those witnesses had given her his license plate number, Herb confessed to going to the bars but stated that his family did not know about it. He said that he had been married for 25 years and had three children. So like you said, he had kids, he was married for 25 years. This was not something he wanted to admit to. Detective Wilson asked if they could search his property. Herb shut it down at that point and said that she could go talk to his attorney and gave her the name of a very prominent one in Indianapolis. Detective Wilson called the firm and asked the attorney if she could search Herb's property. The attorney said that he had never heard of Herbert Baumeister. So Wilson went back to the Save-A-Lot to talk to Herb again, where he told her she could speak to his attorney. So she called the firm again, where the attorney told her a second time that he had no idea who this person was. Very frustrated, she went back to the save-a-lot 
for a third time, but this time Herb had apparently managed to send over a retainer check to the firm. So when she had called again, the attorney said that, no, she could not search the property. Oh, so was he lying at first? Yes, he was totally lying. I guess buying himself some time. And it worked. (laughs) I mean, he was giving her the runaround. He was, yeah. Detective Wilson felt that she had a good suspect for the murders, but didn't have enough evidence to obtain a search warrant. So she reached out to a forensic anthropologist to see how she could look at the property without setting foot on it. The doctor advised her to do an aerial search of the property, which would show potential burial spots. Okay, so I'm just going to take my jet and we're going (laughs) to... Well, they take a police helicopter. We're going to take that police helicopter... was Indiana. I don't know if they had police jets in the 90s in Indiana. Mm, unlikely. That'd be more like a DC thing, right? Probably. Yeah. <laughs> or an LA thing too. I the, think. the LAPD's got the jets. I can see that. But they did have this badass doctor, this forensic anthropologist. So they went up in the police helicopter with an infrared camera, which, if bodies had been buried on the property, the heat from decomposition would appear on the camera. Unfortunately, though, nothing showed up during their search. So either the bodies had been uh, moved to a place where they couldn't view them or they hadn't been buried recently because the decomposition, I guess, seeing it with the infrared only lasts for so long while it's decomposing. I see. So it was probably like too decomposed for them to locate it. Exactly. So Detective Wilson decides to approach Mrs. Baumeister regarding searching the property. So she's going around her when she speaks to Julie about the men that have gone missing in the area and asks if she can search the large estate. Julie tells her that Herb has never so much as raised his voice at her or the kids and that until the detective comes back with proof or a search warrant, they could not search the property. That evening, Julie told Herb about the visit from the detective. Herb told her that a disgruntled employer had complained about him and that the police were coming around so they needed to be careful, but that it was nothing to worry about. Now, I mean... So, yeah. (laughs) Wouldn't you be a little worried? First you find a skull. Yes. And then you have the police... Now the police are coming saying, can we search because there's missing men and we think they might be here. I don't know about you, but I think I'd be willing to have someone search if, you know, I have nothing to do with this. Yeah. But she was protecting him and she didn't know. She was, you know, thinking. Or maybe she was like, there's no way. Exactly. I think she was like, there's no way he could do this. He was such a calm person. She had never seen any violence in him. So So in that way, she was protecting him because she didn't think that he did it. Exactly. Right. Because if somebody said that about you, I'd be like, she's not going anybody no way she's just too perfect we have each other's back mm-hmm. maybe too <laughs> we do too hard <laughs> But it was after this event that things started to get tense between Herb and Julie. So things were unraveling in their marriage. They were also having issues with their businesses since the contract with the Children's Bureau had been canceled. They were facing bankruptcy. Herb started to have really bad mood swings and actually moved into the guest house. Oh, so things are kind of going downhill. There's trouble in paradise. Mm -hmm. As we see. And I'm sure he's trying not to get caught. So all that paranoia is probably building up. Oh, I bet. Making him anxious and irritable. Yeah, that's probably where the irritability came from. He's like, oh, great. He's like, stop (laughs) asking me questions. (laughs) Yeah. Enough about all the skulls and bones in the backyard. (laughs) Just trust me. (laughs) Right. 
In the summer of 1996, Julie filed for divorce, and with the skull still in the back of her mind, she contacted the police and said she would cooperate now. She figured it out. She's putting pieces together. She is, yeah. With her lawyer present, she had the police come to the home when Herb was going to be gone at their lake condo with their son. She told them about the skull she had found. The police asked her to show them where the skull was on the property. When she escorted them out to the spot where her son had found the skull roughly two years prior, the police ended up finding more bones and even some teeth, human teeth. So is he passing this off? At this point, or are they thinking he has to be the one doing this? The police obviously think it's him, I think, at that point. And then, obviously, his wife, I mean, she must know. Get us away. Yeah. And so, even though there were skulls and bone fragments, it could have been an ancient Indian burial ground. Since they couldn't rule that out, they actually got in touch with that forensic anthropologist that had helped with the prior aerial search. He came out and he looked at the bones and it was confirmed that they were human remains and that they were recently deposited. So they were oh. not ancient. They were And new. at that point, they were probably in that house for couple years, huh? Yeah, because they moved in in 1991, and this is now 1996. So fresh bones in the property. So Fox Hollow Farm was now a crime scene. Get the shovels. Get the- <laughs> Maybe a rake, because it sounds like they were just up at the top. Not the even surface. like, you yeah. don't even dig holes. You don't even need to dig. He left it all out there. If you think 18 and a half acres is a lot of land. That's a lot. Who's going to walk all of that land yeah. and look for bodies? He I- probably knew that. As a serial killer, I'm sure that's why he got that piece of property. Yeah. He's like, this is much easier than having to dump bodies on the side of the road. I will just dump them on my property. Especially since at that point the police know that there are bodies being found yes. on the side of the road yep. and the media's caught wind of it so now he needs a different kind of a way different to get... place yeah yeah julie insisted that the deputies bring her son to her because herb was unstable and she wanted to protect her son from what was about to happen deputies went to get their son and stated that it was due to the divorce like a, a custody thing so that way he didn't suspect the property being searched to Worked. protect the kid since he wasn't stable she was worried about what might happen to her son if he finds out he's wanted now that makes sense she did the right thing there and so the deputies got the son brought him back but her probably started to wonder what was going on while he was still at the condo the police knew that they just had circumstantial evidence and they needed more for charges to stick because even though they found all the bone fragments there's nothing that links him to committing those crimes exactly or murders right he could say that's it 18-acre estate. Someone came and dumped them. I don't don't have anything to do with this. This is true. So the police did a search of the property immediately around the area where the skeleton had been found by Julie's son. They found more bones, but most were just fragments of bones that were intermingled with human teeth. It was theorized that the murderer was placing the bodies in the woods and allowing them to decompose, and then animals would drag parts of the body and the bones away. And that's why things were kind of scattered about. What remained was doused in gasoline and burned. So this is what the police assumed was being done with the bodies. So he had a burn pile, essentially. Yes, they actually found one. There was a creek on the property, which was searched and pulled up just tons of human bones, like ribs and a ton of stuff. So That's terrifying. Yes. And they also found a mulch pile where earlier bodies must have been placed by the murderer to decompose. But as time went on, Herb either got lazy or comfortable from not being caught. And the bodies got closer and closer to the house, with one of the more recent ones being just 50 feet from the back door. 
That's so scary. He's so confident. Ugh. Didn't even care to hide it. No, not at, at all. that point. They found metacarpal bones that came from 11 separate left hands. So at least 11 confirmed victims. To identify the 11 confirmed victims, DNA samples would be needed from close family members. The cost in 1996 was $1,200 for a sample, and the family would have to cover it since the authorities did not at this time. That sucks. I know. So the, actually, the, anthro, um, the anthropology team was able to reduce the cost by about 50% for the families. Still a lot at that time. Yeah. Imagine you have to pay all this money after yes. finding out you just lost one of your family members. Right. And then um, they were able to successfully identify eight men, Roger Allen Goodlett, 34, Stephen Hale, 26, Richard Hamilton, 20, Manuel Resendez, 31, Mike Kern, 46, Johnny Bayer, 20, Alan Broussard, 28, and Jeff Jones, 31. Eight confirmed victims. And I can't imagine how many more are unidentified. Well, like the early searches of the property found 5,500 bone fragments and teeth. So, So considering how many bones were discovered, it's estimated that the count on the property was actually 17 to 22 victims on the property. Additional? A total, probably about 22 wow. victims on the, prop- on the property. So this isn't counting his I-70 potential victims. Oh. His victim count was probably in, the, it could have been 30s, 40s. Who knows, even higher. That's terrifying and so sad because we don't know who these people are. Yeah, no further families came forward, which was really sad, but they believe it was because Herb would target, like we talked about, transients who had little or no connection to Indianapolis. Herb was well aware that when they went missing, there would be little chance for them to be found, if families even looked at all. Man. Now, Herb gets tipped off about them searching his property by a news story. He flees to Ontario, Canada, after the arrest warrant is issued for the murders at his estate. If that's not like a telltale sign. (laughs) Oh, he fled to Canada? Yeah, so a little suspicious. Yeah, this guy is guilty AF. So he ended up in Pinery Provincial Park on July 3rd, 1996. He wrote a three-page suicide note apologizing about messing up the park, his broken marriage, and failing businesses, but made no mention of his victims and did not even hint to committing the crimes. One strange thing in his letter was that he mentioned that there was only one bullet in his gun so that he could make sure if a child came by after he was dead, they would not hurt themselves with the gun. So no concern for all of the young men he had murdered, but he still had to make this point about the fact that he didn't want any children being hurt after he was deceased. Which is weird because he did hurt children. children. Yeah, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds. Now he wants to care on his last moments. I guess. Or, apologize. Or maybe just give the appearance of caring. I don't know. Because who was it? Israel Keys too, talked about he would never hurt a child. That's true. But he actually did. We think he did. We think it was his first victim. Yes. After he finished his letter and had a peanut butter sandwich, Herb shot himself in the forehead with the bullet in his gun. Okay. His last meal was a peanut butter sandwich? Yes. That's just not the way. That's not the way not I the... would want to go out. <laughs> what, would have you, a... what would you want your last meal to be? Maybe like... Some scallops. Ooh, some hot some wings. herb butter. Oh, hot wings. Of course you would. Yes. Hot wings and rosé. And rosé. Yeah. We're halfway there. I know. You got the rosé? We are. Yes. What about you? What would be your last? Uh, maybe scallops. 
Ooh, scallops yeah. would be good. I think that would be delicious. Some good fried rice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Because I wouldn't care at that point about the carbs. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know. The last meal. Yeah. <laughs> Enjoy so, it. Right. So, um, so he even had awful taste buds. He... <laughs> Some people might like peanut butter sandwiches. I mean. He was a bit basic, wasn't he? Very basic. <laughs> oh, gosh. Okay. So Herb, like other cowardly serial killers that know they are caught and decide to take their own lives, was never brought to justice. Like Israel Keys. That's the coward's way out. It is. It really yeah. is. Okay. So now let's talk about whether or not we believe Baumeister was the I-70 strangler. We know what you believe. We know what I believe. Okay. <laughs> I-70 is a long east to west freeway that links several states between Baltimore, Maryland and Cove Fort, Utah. The I-70 strangler is an unidentified serial killer who killed 12 males in Indiana and Ohio between June of 1980 and October of 1991. And I listed them in the timeline so that way you guys could kind of see what was going on in Herb's life as these I-70 victims were coming up. See a timeline. Timelines are always helpful. It is. So the I-70 Strangler is not to be confused with the I-70 Killer. I didn't know about, but he murdered six store clerks in the Midwest in the spring of 1992 his victims being mostly young women. The I-70 Strangler's victims ranged in age from 14 to 42 and were male. All of the 12 confirmed victims had been strangled and their bodies were found either naked or partially clothed near Interstate 70 in water, like rivers or streams, or they were dumped in a ditch off the interstate in a more rural part where it wasn't likely for people to just come across them. Most of the victims appeared to be part of the LGBTQ community and disappeared within a four-block radius of Indianapolis, Indiana. The killer has never been officially named, but suspects include Larry Eiler and Herb Baumeister. So it has to be one of the two, huh? I think so. And I even think maybe one of like the topless corpse might have been Larry Eiler's victim, which about to tell you guys about Larry Eiler briefly. Eiler was convicted of the murder of Daniel Bridges and confessed to murdering 21 teenage boys and young men after his death, with four of the murders being committed with an accomplice. So his attorney actually read his confession after he was deceased. His murders involved restraining his victim and sadomasochism before they were stabbed and or slashed to death. His victims were given alcohol and sedatives prior to their assault and murder. The majority of the wounds on his victims' bodies were inflicted in the chest and the abdomen, and several were disemboweled. And I know that don't like that at all. That, yeah, I get chills when I hear people are disemboweled and dismembered. Those things should stay inside and, and together. Together, yeah. I agree. If you if a normal human being can take out organs from a living person, that's just... Yeah, and they're not a doctor doing it yeah. in a surgery site. There's a problem. Major. Mm-hmm. So he was also known to have dismembered his victims. Sorry, there you go again. And they were typically discarded in fields. Eiler liked drugging and torturing his victims. Even the FBI profile of Eiler prior to his arrest states that the individual would project a macho image and seek the company and approval of other masculine males and be afraid to be labeled as a gay man. Many of Eiler's victims were athletic and muscular, so he would most likely have to be physically strong. So this was the FBI profile of Eiler. Let's compare the two, shall we? There's some major differences. Big differences in how they kill people because Baumeister would sexually assault then kill, and the remains of the 11 men at his Fox Hollow estate were all burned. Or just left to decompose. Left to decompose, right. But his victims weren't tortured. 
No, he usually just strangled them because it, it seemed like he liked to see that moment yeah. where they realized they were dying. Mm-hmm. And it also seemed like it was a very sexual thing. It was for Baumeister. Yeah. Eiler, he would brutally torture them, but I don't think he would sexually assault his victims. I'm probably going to do Larry Eiler next for my episode. That one's going to be a It'll be heavy, heavy yeah. intense episode. So Baumeister was seen leaving a gay bar with Michael Riley, one of the I-70 Strangler victims, prior to his body being found strangled on June 5th, 1983. So there's an eyewitness seeing one of the victims of the I-70 Strangler with Baumeister. Herb's wife told police that he would leave for business trips more than 100 times during the period of time where they owned the Save-A-Lot store and could provide receipts showing he had traveled I-70. Yeah. Once again, it's, it links up just with Israel Keys. Mm-hmm. It's like, I've got my business trips. Yes. Yeah. And business yeah, and we know murder trips. It's actually happening on these business trips. Yeah. Well, additionally, bodies stopped being found along I-70 around the time that Baumeister bought the large Fox Hollow Farm estate. However, there is no known physical evidence linking him to the I-70 killings. Did the bodies or did people stop going missing after he was gone? Yes. Wow. <laughs> sure did. So it's sure pretty did. likely. Do you think it was Eiler? It sounds like it was Baumeister. I think so too. I think Baumeister is the I-70 strangler. Yeah. First, bodies are being found on his property. Mm-hmm. And then the bodies that were found on I-70, they weren't like dismembered and they didn't look tortured. Except for the one that they said was topless. That like the whole like, torso Like body? topless removed or like clothes removed. I don't know. I, I couldn't find any more information. It just said that he was topless. Hmm. I think it's Baumeister. But, yeah, I think he was. I agree. All right. So we're, we're at the same place with this one. We are. And do you guys agree? Yeah. Let us know what you think. Do you think Herb Baumeister, Baumeister. was or Baumeister? <laughs> you say Bo, I say Bow. And let me just say that the lady on the news said Bo. Did she? I thought it was Bow. No, I think she said Bo. Oh, she said Bow. You're right. Have I been saying Bo this whole time? I, don't, I, I mean, I just noticed it now. Oh my gosh. Whatever. <laughs> Same person. <laughs> You'll hear us use Bo and Bow. It's interchangeable. You know who we're talking about. It's Herb. Yeah. Well, can we talk about that raccoon video, by the way? Yeah. We were actually looking it up so we'd know how to pronounce his last name, whether it was Bowmeister or Baumeister. And so we looked it up. It's news footage of Herb complaining about a raccoon being tagged by the stripings that go down the street to color the traffic lines. Yes, he was very uh, disturbed. He was disturbed by it and he took pictures of it. On and his Polaroid. And they interviewed him. Look it up because it's a real thing. Google Herb Baumeister or Baumeister. Raccoon. Uh, raccoon or roadkill. There's a video and it's so strange how upset he is about this poor raccoon. He said the raccoon deserved better. And he's a serial killer. But he's concerned about this raccoon getting a yellow stripe from the traffic paint. And what I'm concerned about is why Indiana has nothing better to report on the news. <laughs> but hey, they caught a serial killer on camera and interviewed him and before he was even known. I mean, how many times has a serial killer been on camera, I wonder? That's true. I just have never seen raccoons on the news in Georgia. (laughs) We we got the deer on the news, girl. (laughs) Do we? (laughs) Yeah, I'm sure. Come on. 
I I haven't seen those interviews. Deer everywhere. <laughs> but I haven't seen the concerned citizens. Oh talking well, about yeah, it. but it's not the '90s either, right? We're not. We have so much to talk about now. Maybe so. So this is the '90s. They were looking for stories. I bet if we pull up some Georgia news footage in the '90s, there's some deer. <laughs> You're probably right. <laughs> All right. So any final thoughts? My final thoughts are that he was a horrible person and took the coward's way out and apparently cared about raccoons more than he did people. Human lives. Yeah. Yeah. I wish that they could still identify some of the victims that we don't even know about. But what do you think? Do you think? Forensics has come so far. So they probably could identify more victims. But like they said, they would need the families to come forward. Maybe with all of the DNA that's filtering into all of these sites now, they can. True. Yeah. They'll be able to find some. But yeah, there's a bunch of unidentified bodies. And it's really sad. This is why they're so scary. These serial killers. The people who can live the double life Make it seem yes, like he goes to his save a lot and, you know, sells some used lamps and coats and then murders men. And he has a charity like he <sighs> would donate proceedings to charity. He was a good guy to make it seem like he was a good person. <laughs> right. And this is why we have trust issues. Trust issues. <laughs> See you donating to those charities, but that doesn't mean anything mm, to me. Mean nothing. We know now you can own a charity. It doesn't mean anything. This is so true. It's crazy what people are capable of when they don't care about humanity and they have no empathy. Yeah. Let us know if this guy spooks you out. Well, and if you're not spooked out yet, you're going to have to head over to episode 19. Oh, yes. Jennifer's going to spook you out with the ghosts, the hauntings at Fox Hollow Farm. Get ready. (sighs) Buckle up. I read some of it and it already spooked me out. Oh, it'll be a deep, deep dive. All right. Well, what's our closing? (laughs) Until next time. (laughs) Stay caffeinated. Get hobbies. And don't murder people. Bye. Bye.